listening to Scoreline Extra, the podcast that gives you the best of our interviews from Scoreline on KCLR. As always, Scoreline brought us some of the best interviews in GEA, rugby, soccer and much more. And later on you're going to hear from Professor Colin O'Gara on the issue of gambling addiction in Ireland and club coaching coordinator at Collection FC, Ollie Brennan, on becoming the first leash club to be awarded the FAI club mark. Before that, though, we have professional throwing coach Thomas Grommark, who discussed his exploits as coach of Liverpool, RB Leeds League and many more, and what his role is as a throwing coach entails at some of Europe's biggest clubs. Throwings in, in, in general is not something which is uh, thought of as a set piece. So a lot of coaches would place a lot of emphasis on the likes of corners and on free kicks. However, the concept that throw-ins can actually be be quite beneficial seems to be quite a new concept, is it not? Yeah, it's pretty new. And it's uh, for me, uh, it's also a bit scary. Imagine that we've been playing football for more than 140 years and no one has really noticed or worked with the throw-ins like deeply. And <laughs> there are normally... F- uh, uh, 40 to 60 throw-ins in a match, so uh, throw-ins are having massive impact on the game's result. In terms of uh, the first time that I noticed that throw-ins were being uh, very much utilised was when Rory Delap was playing with the Stoke. And Rory Delap used to have a very long throw-in, and that was seen almost like a corner. But there's other more beneficial ways to establish an advantage from throw-ins as opposed to just having the long throw, is there? Yeah, I'll say that, of course, uh, some teams can utilize the long throw-in like Stoke did, but I'll say it's perhaps only like uh, 5 or 10% of all teams who have really strong and tall players who can do it like Stoke did. And But for me, it's even more important uh, to work with all the throw-ins all around the pitch. Uh, I'm having a philosophy called the long, the fast, and the clever throw-in, and 90% of my work is around a pretty normal throw-in at your own penalty area or in the middle of the pitch. How can you create space so you can either keep possession, create a chance, or score a goal after a normal throw-in? So that's that's the main work, and all teams in the world can can really benefit for um, like 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 with 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 the fast and clever throw-ins. Is there a bit of a a correlation with basketball, say, in in, in the sense of? A basketball from the side or from the the baseline, you have to create space. You have to get away from your opponent. Obviously, it's a lot more of a tighter situation on a basketball court than a football field. But is there same similar philosophies in in the fact that you have to get away from your opponent? Yeah, you can say I, I take a lot of things from basketball. I've been also been playing street basketball my whole life, and also one year in a club. And I'll say it's it's, it's actually more open playing basketball. I'm. I'm like um, inspired by because if it's like like uh, inbound in basketball, it's pretty easy to get possession there because you can catch it with your hands, so you don't need much space. So it's more open play in basketball. I I look at, but I take inspiration from a lot of different sports. I've been playing football myself for many years. I've also been been on the Danish national team in athletics. I'm seeing a lot of things around the body and physical movement there. I've been four years on the Danish national bobsleigh team and. And it took a lot of uh, things around video analysis, but also we had a really innovative approach around uh, development. And so, so, so I tried to take a lot of things from different sports. So with, with the likes of, say, athletics, um, are you focusing on the throwing and then, say, athletics that you competed in for the Danish um, 
would require a lot of kind of acceleration and takeoff speed, would it not? So does that factor into players receiving the ball and that they're kind of taken off immediately with sharp bursts of pace? Do you see that a lot in your philosophy? No, not at all. For me, it's uh, my inspiration from athletics is more around the throwers in athletics. And I use this inspiration mostly around, um, you know, uh, improving the player's long throw. And most players, uh, when they coach with me over a period, they improve their throw-ins between 5 and 10 meters, uh, and some up to 15 meters only with technical improvement. So I'll say the inspiration from athletics is, is, is primarily around improving the long throw-ins. So um, I'll say if you have to take one sport where, where most of my inspiration is from is, is, is basketball with the space creation. But I'll say I take inspiration from a lot of things, also from nature, if I see a a flock of small birds really being aware around the big predator bird there. You know, I'm taking inspiration from that too, because awareness is also really important, both when it, when you have attacking throw-ins, but also when you want to uh, take the ball from the opponents when they have a throw-in. So, so you know, I'm, I'm getting inspired from a lot of things in life. And when did other teams then happen to, professional teams, happen to pick up then on your teachings? Um, obviously, it was something that you would have dedicated a lot of time to before it got to a, a huge professional standard with the, all the Danish top clubs and with the likes of Liverpool and RB Leipzig. Yeah, actually, I, I got the idea in January 2004 where I thought, that was in the middle of that bobsleigh period, where I thought, hey, if I can make a good throw in myself, can't I teach other players to do it? So I went down to my li- library to find that book about throw-ins, but there were no books at all. So I used approximately six months to, to video analyze myself and how should I place the hip? What about the grip? What about the distance between the feet? What about the running and much more? And in October 2004, I had a throwing course, but I didn't know if it would work. So so I could have been starting with a youth or amateur team, but I had the courage to contact a local Superliga team from Denmark, Vibor, and luckily enough, they said yes, and they improved their throw-ins a lot, of scored a lot of goals after throw-in situations. So, so, and so, immediately it was a success. And and the first couple of years, it was only the long throw-in I coached, but but after I saw um, one of my teams do really bad throw-ins in in early two thousand and seven, I thought, hey, that can't be real. I thought it was only amateur and youth teams who were so bad at the throw-ins, but I realized that no matter what league they looked at, also Premier League and Champions League, and so they were really bad at the throw-ins when they had a really normal throw-in and in the middle of the pitch where the players were marked. So I started working on my long, fast and clever throw-in philosophy. So so I've been working uh, on that for many years, and you can say my big breakthrough came in July 2018, where Jurgen Klopp called me directly to uh, ask me for help around the throw-ins. And so you did you go over then to Liverpool and work directly with that team? Obviously, the Liverpool team in 2018 went on to achieve fantastic things. Um, did there, Was there a direct correlation between your teachings and, and goals, say, for Liverpool in, the, in that year? Yeah, you can say that that the players were really motivated because in the 17-18 season, Liverpool had a fourth place in the Premier League and at that time, that was a fantastic result. Also had a Champions League final where, where 
they lost against um, Real Madrid. Real Madrid, yeah. So, so, so the players were just so motivated to take the final little step in both tournaments, and and yeah, we ended up in in a, with a second place in the Premier League, just one point after Manchester City, but won the Champions League final, and 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 the thing. The challenge was with Liverpool that the throw-ins were really bad. At that time, Liverpool FC had a, uh, a throw-in possession on 45.4% at throw-ins under pressure, where the players are marked. At. And Liverpool were only number 18 out of uh, 20 in the Premier League, so third last. But in my first season, the 18-19 season, we improved to a possession on 68.4% and went from number 18 to number one in the Premier League on throw-ins under pressure. Uh, also, last season, we scored 14 goals uh, from throw-ins situations all around the pitch. It was not any long throw-ins to watch opponent's goal at all. So, so my coaching had had an effect both on on the possession, but also on goals scored. Um, and even if you're not scoring on the throw-in or creating a chance, you can say that if you're keeping possession, you are also keeping control of the game because often if you lose the ball at a throw-in under pressure you're caught out of balance and then suddenly the opponents are going the other way and, and there is also a lot of goals conceded that way so so can you both improve your throwing possessions at throwing under pressure and also score goals it's it's a big uh, improvement of the general performance of the team as a Manchester United fan, I suppose I can say I wasn't too happy with uh, any Liverpool goal that happened during the year. But nonetheless, it's, it's incredibly fascinating. With the type of players that you find yourself working with, is it the likes of right-backs and, and left-backs? Were you working with the likes of Andy Robertson and Trent Alexander-Arnold? Or do you work with guys that are higher up the pitch? I'm working with all the players on the team. A lot of people think I'm, I'm mostly or, or only working with the fullbacks, but I'm actually working with all the players on the team, both because all players should be able to take the throw in if we have a fast, good option, but mostly because all the players have to participate in, in creating space. So, so I'm working with all the players. Of course, I do sometimes some specific things with the fullbacks, but mostly it's, it's, it's all the players. And, and back to you on Manchester United, you can say that, I think at the moment that Manchester United are in the same place like Liverpool were before I came to Liverpool, that they had a pretty good wrestles uh, and pretty good placement, but they missed the final step. And what I can see now is that Man Manchester United are really bad at the throw-in. So, so yeah, they can they could also really use a, a big improvement there. That that may perhaps take them a, a step further. And uh, would they would yourself be someone that would be likely to go from a Liverpool to Manchester United or what club are you currently at now Thomas? Yeah the last three seasons I've been working with uh, with Liverpool FC also working with them now uh, I'm a freelance throwing coach so so I think the last three seasons I've been working with approximately eight teams per season so all wow. over the world and I can just say I'm a freelance throwing coach and and not and have any allegiances yeah, I, I can work for any club in the world. So unless I sign a contract where um, that says I can't, you know, I'm free for every club. So let's see what happens uh, in next season. I can't say that right now. And when you're talking about the motivation of players um, like Liverpool and you found that there was incredible desire there in the team that you were coming into, that obviously helps them with your teachings and the reception that you're going to get because everybody is, is going to be open to a new way of gaining an advantage. Was there any player in particular that you worked with that uh, was kind of taking a duck to water and just and, and 
excelled in in your teachings? I'll say in general, every every player was really motivated. Of course, if you look at at the numbers of throw-in takings, uh, the fullbacks are taking the most throw-ins. So, so I think, uh, especially uh, Andy Robertson, Robo, and Trent Trent Alexander Arnold was really no especially motivated because they have a, a really big role in that. So, so, so. Yeah, you know, they've both been improving a lot, going from really bad at the throw-ins to, to being world-class. So, But again, I've been only been feeling motivation from, from all the players because right now the players can see that that it means a lot to the performance. So, And when I'm going to water clubs, first of all, now we have more knowledge around the throw-ins that we had before. If you go 10 years back, a lot of people would only have been laughing about a throwing coach. But now we have data, we have analytics, we have a lot of statistics. So now it's easy to see that that the big influence throw-ins have. So, of course, as a football player as and a, as a manager and a, a coach, assistant coach, you want to improve your team uh, the most you can. So, so, so I only feel motivated players and staff when I'm coming to the clubs. Um, say if somebody is out there, we have a lot of soccer, we have a massive soccer history here in Ireland, we have a lot of amateur clubs and people playing Sunday League football, but can they ha- look up your, say, website, throwin.dk, and find information, or is it all in your book, um, Lazy Energy, where you can find information about how you can gain advantage from a throw-in? Is this type of teachings just for the professional game, or can it be used and utilised at uh, people playing Sunday League football and that enjoy their football that way? First of all, I'll say my book, Lazy Energy, that's not about throw-ins, that's about motivation in work life. And so it's it's, it's a bestseller in Denmark, but it's not translated to English yet. Um, I'm writing a book about throw-ins, but I don't know I don't know when it will be published, perhaps in a year or three years. So I've already been writing approximately 100,000 words, so I've been re- writing really much. Um, I'll say, of course, you can use this uh, in, in amateur and youth football to also Sunday league football. And, and even there is perhaps even more uh, important uh, than in professional football. I'm giving away a lot of uh, free drills, for example, in my homepage, thomasgranomark.com. I'm giving away my best four best basic throwing drills I'm also using for the professional players. And already now there are over 4,000 coaches from all around the world has been picking them up. So just go to thomasgranomark.com. You can get them there because, hey, you don't you don't want to lose the ball in a throw-in in a Sunday league football game too. It's much, much cooler to keep possession or create a chance. So, so yes, um, of course, right now I'm only working only working with the professional teams, but but you can get my free free drills and and in the future you can you can buy my book uh, too. So that'll that'll give a lot of uh, advantage for the players and the coaches in the Sunday League football too. And hopefully Manchester United will utilize your services quite soon as well. I'll be quite happy and open to get more goals from throw-ins. But it's been a pleasure speaking to you, sir. In terms of the Danish league, um, I was over in Copenhagen not so long ago. Unfortunately, I didn't get to make a, a game. Ireland and Denmark have uh, consistently met at international level over the past years. But how's the league going in general and how did it uh, survive during COVID? I think it's okay. We had we had the fans on the stadium until let me see. I think it was August or September or so. And I think we are the COVID levels are and corona levels are pretty good here in Denmark. So we are slowly now opening up society. 
Um, so I think it goes pretty well now. And with the Danish league, I think it's it's okay. I just I just signed like uh, last week. I just signed a, a contract with FC Copenhagen as a throwing coach. That's the biggest club in Denmark. So so I'm I'm still like like a part of the the Danish league. So so but of course we hope to to get audience back on the stadium again. Uh, hopefully in a, in a few weeks because the fans are meaning. Uh, so much for uh, the football game. So, and of course, yes, as you mentioned, we played Ireland a lot. You know, the last couple <laughs> of years. It's a little bit funny how we can uh, how we could draw Ireland <laughs> every time. You know, so. Um, but you know, I love. I haven't been to Ireland before. I really love to come visit Ireland because I've seen a lot of programs around. Um, Islands Lake. I just ex- exactly, I think it was two days ago. I saw like this this uh, documentary about the uh, trains uh, where where they rode all around Ireland. So you know, I just love the, the Irish culture and so. So I hope I have the chance in the future to 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 visit Ireland. And if, if there are some clubs over there who want to uh, invite me, you're absolutely welcome. And you don't have to be the best club in Ireland because sometimes there are three or four clubs who are going together and just invite me. And I'm doing a talk around throw-ins, showing a lot of drills on the pitch and so. So so again, yes, I hope uh, all the best for, <laughs> for Ireland, Irish football and the Irish national team. Well, hope to have you over here soon, Thomas. Thank you so much for your, your time. I know you're a busy man. You have more media interviews today. So um, we'll put all the website information up on scoreline.ie uh, later on during the week. But for now, thank you very much and uh, enjoy the rest of your media obligations for the day. Yeah, you're absolutely welcome and have a fantastic day. Next up, we have the Head of Addiction Services at St. John of God Hospital, Professor Colin O'Gara, a lecturer at UCD. O'Gara spoke to Scoreline on Sunday about the struggles of addiction and what needs to be done and how to help people who fall victim to gambling addiction. Attention is going to turn to the likes of Cheltenham and gambling. As we all know, Cheltenham is a massive day in the sporting calendar, but unfortunately, what comes with that and what often comes with that is gambling and although gambling can sometimes be a quite fun pastime it is linked closely with addiction and it is a time where family members get worried as do people with addictions in gambling get quite worried because Cheltenham is such a huge event that is so synonymous with gambling and joining me on the line now I'm delighted to say is Professor Colin O'Gara Head of Addiction Services at St. John of God Hospital lecturer with UCD amongst many other things a leading psychiatrist in Ireland based around addiction Firstly Colin thanks very much for taking the time of day to speak with me Thanks very much Shane for having me on It's an absolute pleasure it's something that's quite close to my heart considering I've seen a lot of my friends lose themselves to gambling, especially around certain types of events. You have the World Cups and you have Cheltenham, as we've just experienced. Um, In regards to gambling's link with sport and this fun factor that businesses try to create by bringing in various different sports stars to be associated with their brand, is this something that has been closely looked at by, say, the Irish government and the link between gambling and sport in general? Um, 
Well, I, I don't think they can avoid it. I don't think any um, one in the country can avoid it. Um, you know, to, to answer it directly, uh, have they looked at it? Um, I don't know is the answer. Um, I'm presuming that they have looked at it in some way. Um, with regards to the government involvement in the whole issue, we believe um, that we will have a office for gambling control and a regulator in this by this autumn. So, um, you know, uh, the government would often say, well, you know, with regard to different features of gambling, that they will that that will be a job for the regulator and for the office for gambling control. But um, I'm satisfied, you know, if that comes in, I'll be happy, and I saw a lot of other people, um, that there'll be some form of regulation in. And the sports, you know, that link between sports and gambling and sports stars and gambling is an obvious thing. It's one of the very first things that would need to be looked at. Um, advertising in particular where kids, you know, before the watershed, so Saturday afternoon, have young children sitting down to watch um, their favourite team, um, be it Liverpool or Man United. Um, you know, what a wonderful occasion for kids, what a wonderful occasion for families to be able to sit down the, you know, and, and watch that. But the problem being... Uh, at the moment in Ireland is that you have these sophisticated, uh, you know, highly polished ads. And in more recent years, unfortunately, we've had very high profile sports people uh, fronting the ads, you know, so um, not ideal. That certainly be one of the one, one of the key things. Um, the other thing would be that the office would 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 look at Shane would be um, taking a levy on on bookmaker profit. Um, the government actually have two hundred thousand, you know, which is a paltry figure really compared to 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 gambling turnover and gambling profit. You know, when you look at you know some 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 of the profit figures um, and what some of the heads of gambling companies. Um, are paying themselves it's 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 absolutely paltry but um you know if if it is the figure of one percent has been put out there um you know if one percent of of the turnover um comes through you we will be in a situation where we'll be able to look at setting up a national network of um you know addiction services for people um affected by the problem it, look, looking back, the the gambling control bill was was introduced in two thousand and thirteen. So that's eight years ago now. So this has been an issue which, at least by this account, has uh, has been on the consciousness for quite some time. Now, it, obviously, it dates back a lot longer. But why is it? What what type of pushback is being received to the bill being acting? Is it? these companies that don't want to? Is it the sponsorship that different organizations are receiving for these companies? What what type of pushback and why is there seem to be such a um, a slow burner in, in terms of regulating this? Well, I don't like to follow up a don't and don't know answer with another don't know answer. But to be fair, we don't know. I mean, you look, the, the headings that we'd look at, you know, they're obvious or lobbying. Now, whether that's you know, it has to be covert rather than overt. Um, the political currency in addressing 
the gambling issue, you know, is it is it for politicians? It's probably not the most attractive thing, but you know, politicians have 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 um, our current Taoiseach, um, you know, addressed the issue of smoking um, many years ago, and that was very unpopular at the time. But you know, um, you know, Michal Martin followed through with that. So you know, to answer the question, what what are the forces that are preventing it? It obviously is going to come in, come in under those headings, um, and I suppose the other one would be priorities. You know, um, has it been a priority when there's so many other priorities, uh, very worthy priorities from uh, you know from a public health and from a medical point of view? Um, the thing that keeps it under the swept under the carpet up until recent years is that. You know, nobody was talking about it, um, and maybe perhaps it was still on the rise with regards to prevalence. But as you've outlined, you have experienced, you know, co- cohort of your friends affected by this. And I think what we've realised is that, you know, in Ireland, this is sport is fantastic. There's a gambling element um, for people that's very enjoyable, um, but what we're beginning to realize is that there's a harmful aspect to this that is undeniable and has become quite prevalent. The quite prevalent, we can't put our finger on and say exactly what that is, but, um, you know, through funding of research, you know, it all is kind of like a, you know, the, the, the circle, you kind of get to close the circle on many different issues if you get funding in, because we'll be able to do research, we'll be able to find out what the figures are, and then we'll be able to direct um, our attention to the right places. But at the moment, we're really just trying to extrapolate from English figures. The UK figures would be, you know, one percent for very severe pathological gambling, which would be total annihilation of the individual, up to about five percent of the overall general population being at risk. So they're affected to a lesser degree. So if you if you convert those into Irish figures. You're really looking at somewhere between fifty thousand for the for the one percent through to three hundred thousand for the five percent, and that's a lot of people. You know, no matter what way you look at it, particularly if we believe it's focused in particular groups like young men, like how many cohorts of young men are we talking about here? So you know, the clinical work I do. You know, maybe I'm biased and I'm looking through a particular lens, but, you know, very typically it's young men who have run into debt problems, who've gambled, you know, or mental health difficulties as a result of being becoming compulsive and being unable to control the problem. Sometimes they present with family members, sometimes they're on their own or with a girlfriend or whatever, but that's that's the picture. And, you know, the consequences are very severe. And, you know, I think as a society we're becoming more... We're becoming more aware of that, and we're bec- we're appreciating it more. That yes, there's, there's gambling is fun, and there is that side, but there's also a very serious medical side to it as well. And on the reverse side as well, in the continuing growth of technology, we've now seen the massive burst in online 
gambling, uh, different betting apps. Uh, I've been watching a game down the the pub with my mates, and sometimes they're more focused on their accumulators than they are on the actual match itself. Um, and they find that as a fun part of the sporting experience. But particularly during lockdown, I'd imagine the numbers for online gambling has soared because some sport still went ahead, and it's very easy to do. It's a it's a click of a button. Have betting companies in your opinion, been proactive enough to curb this type of addictive behavior? Is there certain things that they've enacted themselves from a private company point of view that helps people? Are they setting restrictions? Are, is there a certain type of sign-ups that are forcing people to be a bit more responsible with their money or setting, as I said, the restrictions, so not allowing to people to run up this debt? Or is it a free-for-all? Uh, we... we, we specifically asked that question in a published paper published now about two years. So the, the whole area is known as responsible gambling initiatives. So um, it can be a whole host of stuff like betting limits, time limits, pop-up messaging, age verification. There's a whole range of stuff there. And um, what we're really seeing in essence is, you know, a... The online space, just as you say, is very difficult to regulate, and there are so many operators. So if you try and block yourself off, and it is voluntary at the moment, one of our suggestions in recent years was that the um, responsible gambling initiatives become mandatory, so companies have to put them in. If you look at Russell Brands, he's just done a video on, on, on um, it was with uh, Ladbrokes, his kind of take on it, and if if you look at um, uh, you know, his take on it, he, he, he presents the fact that you can't, you're not going to stop uh, you know, gambling or limit your, your losses on a voluntary basis if you're addicted, because by the very nature of being addicted, you, you've lost control over those very things. So um, the, the initiative there, you know, to answer you know, the question and your question, I mean, it's there is, it's very inadequate at the moment. Um, most of what's available, it, well, firstly, is an inadequate. In some um, websites, there's nothing, very, very little, if, if anything. And, there, you know, this stuff needs to be mandatory to protect people from addiction. It's a question for the, of course, it'll be one of the major tasks of the regulator to decide at what level they're going to pitch things at. But, I mean, simple things like betting limits would be the obvious Thing, you know that you you know it's not an option anymore. Now it'll hit people obviously who don't have a problem, but people who don't have a problem will they will they you know take the time to set a limit to protect other people who might run into a difficulty? That's the question. So and these are all things that I mean you know if we get the regulator in the autumn, then the the actual work begins. You know there's been a gambling commission in the UK since 2005. And just before Christmas, um, they did a review of their betting, uh, where they're at at the moment, and they banned credit cards there just before Christmas as well. So, you know, the UK are starting to move ahead um, with pace now. There are some um, lobby groups for protection of individuals in the in the UK. Gambling with Lives is a particular one that springs to mind, which is set up by parents of children who have died through suicide because of um, gambling and they've particularly powerful video quite harrowing video actually um, on their website 
Um, so, you know, we are, we are, I want to avoid kind of, you know, um, making statements that, that, you know, that have any element of hysteria to them. But, you know, to say we're well behind is very reasonable. I think some would say we're miles behind. Um, but, you know, if we get this regulator in, that I believe Minister James Brown, based on a conversation I had with, with him some weeks ago, I believe if we get that in, we've got a starting point. Um, if we don't get it in this year, it'd be very upsetting, you know, because as you quite rightly pointed out, you know, 2013 was, you know, there was a few years that preceded that um, prior to Alan Shatter's, Minister Shatter's very good um, gambling control bill and uh, far too long has elapsed since then, and really, really far too long. So we have to see action this year, you know. Alcohol's link uh, with sport is, is, is you know, well well founded, um, but we've seen regulation come in regards to that. Um, different, they're not allowed basically sponsor soccer jerseys in in the UK, and you know it's no longer the 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 All Ireland sponsored by Guinness. I know that we still had the Guinness Six Nations, but in, in terms of the regulation that came in for alcohol, has that proven to be effective in the long term? Well, it's not in long enough. Um, you know, it, it, it was one. Of, I think the alcohol bill spent the longest time of any recent bill. By the way, just to get in, it was it, it was very, very. It took a very slow pace through the various stages of enactment. Um, but you know, the, the, these things absolutely work. These initiatives work. I mean, if, for instance, there are studies to suggest, you know, to support actually that you know if you restrict. Um, availability of alcohol, for instance, that the liver cirrhosis rates go down. So, you know, the end harm is reduced depending on, on the availability of a product. The, the issue with gambling is it's incredibly available at the moment. Um, and there are no, no real inhibitions on it at all. So, you know, the end harm is going to be maximized. Um, it's not pragmatic to ban something um, because it can cause all sorts of problems. Prohibition just generally doesn't work, in my view. Um, so, you know, we're looking to regulate this product, uh, particularly the online, as you say, in a way that protects people and in tandem set up. Um, you know, the education is a huge piece because of the stigma that goes with gambling addiction. Um, I don't think people... Um, you know, necessarily will jump to the idea that it is a brain, you know, a, a you know, brain disorder with very, very clear deficits, very similar to other addictions. Um, and, you know, people, when they get caught in that compulsive state, have very little control over it. So there's so much education that needs to go in around that. Um, and similarly, you know, the services, um, you know, there the, the really is there's a huge shortage of... Um, you know, support for people who who have this difficulty in Ireland at the moment. So, you know, that needs to be brought in as well as soon as possible. And just before I, I, I let you go, Professor, something that has caught my eye over the past few years and something that struck me when I was speaking to him when you were talking about young people being exposed to pre-watershed gambling adverts is gaming. And in particular games like FIFA or various other games, you pay to receive a better 
outcome. So you pay for a pack or a loot box and in that loot box might be a weapon or a, a football player that may help you in your next game against somebody else that you're coming up with. Um, is that been looked at at all? Because it is, from a very young age, people have access to these games yeah. and then they have access to the likes of FIFA Ultimate yeah. Team, which is very popular. So is there attention been drawn to those type of things? There certainly is by us. Um, you know, the loot box um, industry is worth billions and we're not going to see loot boxes being removed from video games anytime soon because of that, um, that reason. But there's no question, I totally agree with you, that these um, elements in video games are gambling and they're priming kids for future, for future gambling. Um, the problem is is actually substantial, and that parents, your listeners, who are parents who have young, even young, very young kids who might have a phone or an iPad, there are apps uh, which can be downloaded from um, the App Store or from Google that will have a four plus rating on them that look very, very kid friendly. The software developers have put a four-plus age bracket on it. Um, But if you dig a little bit deeper, you will see that a child protection agency in Australia will say that it should be 12-plus. And then if you speak to people like ourselves, we say that those games shouldn't be anywhere near children. And the reason why is because there are gambling features within those games. So some of the very popular family apps or games that appear to be for children, you will, ha- you, you will have a feature in it, spin it and win it. You will literally have a, a roulette feature or a slot feature in those games. So it's completely unnecessary, completely unacceptable. Um, when you combine that with the loot boxes, when, you know, blockbuster video games like FIFA, um, there are examples of kids spending you know, their communion money or whatever money they may have got um, on on these games, hundreds of euro, which again is, is, is a massive amount of money for a young child. Um, but they've emptied their savings into these games. This mimics what older kids, uh, adolescents and young adults do with sports betting. Um, so the problem is pervasive. The online space is massive and video gaming in particular is something we need to be very concerned about because I, you know, it's not until, it's not, I'm a parent myself and it was only when I dug a little bit more in these games I was shocked to find the infiltration of gambling features into these games and, you know, how much gambling has proliferated across all platforms across all media platforms it really is um you know appears unstoppable at the moment and without any regulation it is you know again without sounding hysterical it is a frightening prospect um you know and and with the digital piece our kids are digital natives they grow up with devices in their hands um i certainly you know didn't um and you know people like myself, parents like myself wouldn't know, wouldn't wouldn't have have you know half of the technological skill that our kids will have. So, but you know, we are treating on a clinical side of things. We're treating, um, you know, young people who 
um, video game, but then um, would engage in an offshoot site um, where there's just, you know, it would be an offshoot of the, of the actual video game and it's just all gambling features. Um, and every time we meet a young person now um, where, you know, we, we become aware of new things online and new features. So um, that that kind of interface between gambling and gaming is a huge one. Um, it's multi-billion and it's not going anywhere anywhere in the near future. It's going to be around for, for quite a while. Very interesting. Well, uh, thank you ever so much for taking the time of day uh, to speak with me, Colin. It's been a pleasure and an enlightening experience. In in terms of if people are out there and they know somebody that's suffering or indeed they're suffering themselves from gambling addiction, what would be the best resource for, for them to, to, to seek help? Yeah, so... Um Gamblers Anonymous is obviously a um, fantastic mutual support group. There's good information on online for Gamblers Anonymous. Um, the other, um, I suppose, my own website has information on it. Colnagara.com. If you check it up, check that on Google. External Problem Gambling, otherwise known as Problem Gambling Ireland, run by Tony O'Reilly. Um, who, who, who um, was previously affected by gambling disorder and now is a leader in the recovery field and his colleague Barry Grant run that organisation and also the Rise Foundation, very helpful as well. So they're just a few and you'll get further from, you know, within those resources, there's many more resources there as well. Well, uh, thank you ever so much for taking the time of day once again. Obviously, your own book as well is uh, available online, Gambling Addiction in Ireland by Colin O'Gara, The Causes, Consequences and Recovery. It's a very lightning conversation. Um, hopefully somebody out there, if they do need to, or if they did, in course, need to hear this, uh, hopefully they will be able to look after themselves. Thank you very much. Thanks a million, Shane. Mind yourself. To wrap us up this week, we have club coaching coordinator at Collection FC, Ollie Brennan. On Sunday, Brennan told Scoreline how the club became the first in leash and the second in the Carlow District League to be awarded the FAI club mark. Thanks very much, Sam, for having us on. Um, appreciate, really appreciate being invited on. Yeah. Oh, any time. It's been a landmark. I suppose time for the club you're the first leash club to win an FAI club mark award I, I know that there's great things been done with the pitch out there but can you explain to our listeners what exactly you re- received that award for and what it entails yeah so you're right it, it, like I mean the club at the moment is going through massive uh, massive developments you know um, and um We've been lucky over the last couple of years, uh, you know, I mean, to put in place some some great facilities. And uh, this uh, FAI club mark is is kind of uh, the next layer on top of that. And I suppose the club mark awards and and what the FAI have done, it's it's all based around uh, improving improving the off the field management of the club. You know what I mean? And helping clubs to uh, achieve. Uh, uh, best practice in, in areas such as um, uh, child safeguarding um, and uh, do you know what I mean other areas of the club so as, as, as part of this award what we had to do over the last couple of months was we had to undertake some risk assessments in relation to child uh, safeguarding and uh, one of the big things that we had to do as well was I suppose produce a register of, of all our uh, volunteers at the club um, and, and as a club now we can we can show uh, we can demonstrate to the FAI and, and to parents out there that, that any volunteers who come to our club that, that are, are working with underage players that 
you know that they have been vetted, that they've done their their safeguarding uh, qualifications, and um, that they're at a, a a level of coaching that's appropriate to the age of of the child that they're coaching. Wow, that it's so it's a big kind of. It's a it, it, it's a big progression in the club's uh, folklore. Now. It is, it is, yeah. It's it, it's putting systems in place that kind of copper fasten everything. Do you know what I mean? Um, so, like, I mean, we we've had to, um, and I suppose this is this is a great thing. What the FAI have done from the point of view of that, you know, what I mean, it's it is a bit of work, but they have done it in such a way that you know, what I mean, all the information is there for the clubs. Um, if you look at the FAI website uh, and go uh, just type in uh, Club Mark Award or the Club Management Guide, actually, they have a Club Management Guide online that you can download, and it has all the information in there. So it'll give you sample kind of club constitutions. Uh, it'll give you sample um, policies um, for safeguarding for other aspects relating to the management of the club as well. Um, and it's just a matter of, uh, you know what I mean, if, if if people in the club have the time to, to take this down and to implement it into their own club. And if you can do that, as I said, the, the Club Mark Award initially is, is, is the, the first step, the entry level where, where we have progressed to. It's, it's, I suppose, it's focused on the safeguarding issues. Um, and... Um, uh, you know, we I suppose we, we we've managed to to get that together now, and we will be looking in the future to to progress on and to develop other areas of the club, like a, a you know a, a safety a safety statement, and um, you know giving all our volunteers in the club um, when they come into the club, inducting them into their roles, um, whether it be coaching or whether they're coming in as a as an officer of the club, a secretary or or, or a treasurer or something like that. You know what I mean? That they have a a kind of a, a job description of, of of what we as a club would like them to do. Um, so that you know, because I think one of the one of the main barriers for people giving their time is that you know a, a lot of the time you'd hear along the lines of God, you know I I've I've never had any experience of football. What would I know? Sure, I wouldn't be able to do that. Like do you know what I mean? So I suppose if we can help and support volunteers coming into the game and encourage more people to get involved, because ultimately uh, the enjoyment you get out of um, uh, coaching kids and and you know the involvement in the sport is is massive. You know. Well, it's something that my club has has struggled with now over the past three years, and we're paying to play in the in the watershed facility is is, is having a pitch. It, it could be quite hard hard to you know uh, buy your own land. It's something that Collection have done in two thousand and eight. You've been in existence since yeah. nineteen eighty three, so it was a long process. Correct, yeah. Does there's something yeah. like having the pitch? Then does that help go getting that FA Club uh, Mark Award? Like, is this something that's been in? the consciousness of the club for quite some time or is it something that during COVID during the downtime of the past year you've been able to strive towards yeah no I think it's it's something um, I suppose I've only been involved with the committee you know over the last probably six or eight months prior to that a lot of people would have been involved and you know what I mean there was a lot of time and effort put into um, fundraising um, for putting the facilities in place and uh, applying for the, the government grants that are available and indeed, you know what I mean, the, the, the LCDC uh, grants from Leash County Council and, and Leash Sports Partnership. Um, so there was a lot of work put in there. So I suppose, I think, uh, speaking with our club secretary, Ian, I know it, it, it was something that was spoke about a couple of years ago, but I I think, yeah, now that we, we have had this downtime in the COVID, um, where we haven't been playing, that it, it has it has allowed people to, to focus on putting these systems in place and, and to develop that side of the game, you know, develop the management of the club. Especially with so many people involved in the club, you have over 300 people registered, different age levels, different genders, they're registered. It's great to see 
they, for them to see the growth that the club is continuing to go towards in this downtime. You know, they're not out on the pitch, they're not playing, they're not training, they mightn't be as ingrained or feel as involved in the club as they would normally be used to. But now this is something that they can point to and be proud of. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree. Um, I think, again, going back to facilities, the facilities have had a, a big impact on the number of, of, of people who are coming to play with us. Um, I know this year is probably the first year in, in a number of years that we've been able to field uh, three junior men's team in the, in the Carlow District League. So that's something we haven't done for quite a while. So I think we've had senior players, I think we've had up around 90 or 95 players registered with the club. It's, it's quite a few players, quite a jump this year. Um, and then the juvenile side of things, yeah, numbers are growing. Um, and I suppose at the younger age groups, we're seeing a massive um, a massive increase in the numbers. You know, I'm talking about the nursery level, under sixes, sevens, eights, nines. And we have some people involved uh, at, at those age groups who are doing great work, you know. Um, one of the other things that we we would like to see and, and try and do is is to develop the girls' side of the game. You know, get more girls involved. Um, and we have been lucky that this year, you know, we've had Wexford Youth Women's National Team use our facilities to um, to uh, as, as a training base. Um, and um, they did before before the COVID lockdown. They ran a training session, and and, and we got we got about forty girls in uh, into the club to start playing. So that's something as well that we would look to to develop um, I suppose yeah the, the facilities do have, a, have an effect because the, the AstroTurf pitch um, when I look at it I, I, I only wish I was like 20 or 25 years younger and I could go <laughs> play on it myself like do you know what I mean it's gorgeous and, and the sand based pitches and that's that's a testament to, to all the people who have been involved in the, in the committee and our sponsors you know what I mean before my involvement in the committee you know all that work has gone on and I suppose going back to this club mark as I said this, this club mark is just is just building on that now facilities are, are in place uh, we're looking to do one or two more things with some of the pitches um, but the facilities are there it's now now time to build on the management structure and then uh, as we build on the management structure what we'd be looking to do is ultimately um, improve the level of coaching not saying it's bad at the minute but improve it further uh, and then you know what I mean that'll have a knock-on effect hopefully to our players and the numbers of kids that are playing and give them opportunities maybe to, to, to play with the the Carlow District Kennedy Cup or, or, or Galway Cup teams or, or even go and play with Carlow Kilkenny in the, in the League of Ireland you know what I mean um, so give the players the maximum opportunity to, to, to play the game yeah, it's uh, it, it sounds exciting I mean, I'm excited and I can hear the passion from you coming through um, <laughs> when everything is up in the air as we all know Kilkenny League yeah. Carlow League everywhere just soccer in general at an amateur level is all up in the air at a junior level are you discussing maybe how to bring players back for training and matches in a safe manner both from the close point of view and also from the league perspective are you talking to the say Carlo District League who are waiting on verdicts from the FAI who are then in turn waiting on the government like is there anything being passed yeah. down towards you I, I suppose at the minute we're all wait, waiting on the government to, to, to come out and, and, and let us know what's happening. Um, I did see an article on, on the RT website this morning about, you know what I mean, the, uh, and I hope it's true, I hope the government are going to give priority to, to get to get underage, to get children back playing sports again uh, as soon as possible because, you know what I mean, they, they need to be active. Um, and I think uh, as a community, we need, you know what I mean, we, we love being involved in sports. So, in sport, so if we can all get back there as soon as, as possible, uh, you know what I mean, it, it'll be for the betterment of everybody. As regards to, you know, yeah, we're, we're, we're waiting for information. We're waiting for the government. Uh, I'm sure when the government make their announcements, the FAI will 
um, will update their their COVID protocols and that will filter down through the leagues to ourselves and whatever is required at that stage we we will we will um, we will work to uh, implement as well. Um, I know before before Christmas and before we were locked down, like um, and when we were allowed to play, like we had appointed a COVID officer at the club. Um, you know, uh, we were asking all managers then as well to to, to, to keep lists of, of players who were attending training sessions and uh, you know for 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 track and trace purposes and that. So there, there was quite a bit of effort and organisation went in um, to do to do that. Those systems are in place. Um, so I suppose once once we hear more from the government and the FAI, we'll we'll know where we're going. Yeah, we're looking forward to getting back out on the pitch. I'm managing Castle Warren. I'm getting lads texting me every week asking me when we're back. I'm saying lads, I I don't know. I'd love to be able to tell you we're back next week and I'll have you out running the pitches but I, unfortunately yeah. I can't but hopefully I'll be able to tell them soon that we have a nice old friendly game with collection on the horizon yeah. and we get to experience the beautiful pitches you have out there we'll, we'll, we can organise something there yeah and hopefully it'll be a lovely sunny sunny Sunday afternoon like it is today that we can we can all get back and play in a bit of sport and Casey Lord gives me the day off so I can go play it as well <laughs> <laughs> Ollie it's been an absolute pleasure it's great to see uh, these things happening from a local level with collection um, amazing and we're looking forward to seeing what the future holds for the club yeah thanks very much thanks very much for having us on like we, we, we're, we're, we're overjoyed with it and, and we're going to continue to work hard to improve ourselves as a club and you know what I mean I think, I think it'll have a knock on effect to the league as well like you know what I mean it'll, it'll drive the standards in the league as well especially so. with the likes of New Oak and Crettyard and Crettyard being successful in the Leinster Junior and, and New Oak yeah. it, you know it, help, it helps kind of bridge that gap doesn't it it does absolutely. It does, and it it'll drive us. Like I mean, I know on the junior men's team, like I mean, we've been looking at Great Yard for the for the last number of years, and and they've been doing phenomenal. And New Oak have been there, uh, won a couple of leagues. Hanover have been yeah. too far. I know they they won. You know what I mean? So it's a competitive division, and I suppose ultimately, yeah, we want to develop all these players coming up through the ranks. And and what we would love to see is we would love to see those players then those kids progressing into the men's teams, and hopefully down the line. Do you know what I mean? We have the facilities in place. We get the, the structures in place from the management point of view that we start seeing a bit of success onto the pitch. And you know, as a club, I suppose having that success at the at the at the senior level would be would be you know what I mean? It'd be phenomenal. It'd, it'd be one of the goals, like you know, from from that point of view. Well, looking forward to seeing what the future holds, Ollie. Thanks very much for taking the time. Thanks very much, Shane. And that is it from Scoreline Extra for this edition of the podcast. You can catch more interviews, previous sporting podcasts and all your sporting news on scoreline.ie. If you like your sporting podcasts, we have more than enough to suffice. You can listen back to our GEA podcast, The Clash Act, with the likes of Richie Power, John Munhall, Owen Larkin and Denise Gall. If gaming and the virtual world is more your thing, look no further than the Football Manager Football Show, where myself, Shane O'Keefe and Ken Maguire play our trade around the world in one of the most beloved sport games there is. And if that's not enough, we have all things MMA every Wednesday and Thursday, discussing everything that is happening in the world of mixed martial arts. For rugby fans, we have The Knock On, where Casey Lahr, Head of Sports Stephen Byrne, chats to well-known faces about all the hot topics in the world of rugby. You can catch all of our podcasts on the KCLR app, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your podcast listening. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane.